Hey everybody, it's Tyler Mon. Thanks for hanging out with us on this week's episode of the show before the show. A quick programming note. Uh, got a new laptop from uh, MLB HQ for the next generation of the podcast, but uh, something was screwed up with my microphone settings for this week's episode, so it sounds a little bit like I'm calling in from a phone underwater. Uh, but we got a fun episode of the show before the show. Stick with us. Some good conversation with Benjamin Hill, St. Louis Cardinals prospect Mason Wynn joins us. It's all ahead on this week's a little bit odd-sounding episode of the show before the show, right now. Hey, welcome into this week's episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. Uh, we're already having fun pre-recording this week on the show before the show. Uh, my name is Tyler Mon, recording on a new laptop. See how this goes. Oh, a little dicey technology. Uh, and the two uh, button-down clad men uh, in front of me on my computer screen from New York City with a whole bunch of baseball cards showing the backsides of uh, those cards to uh, to the camera today. Glad that I'm describing things for this audio medium podcast. Uh, Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill, what's up, dudes? Not much, Tyler. Yeah, we're we are currently in the Jim Cott room. Uh, at MLB HQ. Uh, they do a good job of decorating these conference rooms with baseball cards in many cases. We're also on the fielding floor uh, for anybody interested in how MLB HQ orients itself. The different floors have conference rooms according to certain categories. So there's a fielding floor, there's a hitting floor, a pitching floor, and then is there a catching floor? I don't know. What is up there on the eighth floor? It's we don't go to the eighth floor very often. What but... if it's like the bunting floor? What if it's like the <laughs> exactly, lamest, yeah. the no, lamest the, conceivable floor? Yeah, the room we reserve on the eighth floor the most, or at least that I do, is a woman who I don't know much about. I should Google her. Sophie Curies. Okay. I think it's Curies. K-U-R-Y-S. Yes, yeah. So maybe there's more of a uh, groundbreakers or executives theme. It's... We'll have to look into it. We'll look into it, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Sophie Curie's uh, played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League for nine seasons from 1943 through 1952, and she was uh, the base-stealing legend in the AAG PBL. She stole 1,114 career bases? What? That's I think it, that's, that's it, what it is. That's it. That's it. Holy yeah. cow. That's more than Ty Cobb, Lou it. Brock. It's the, uh, it is the speed floor. There's, um... Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, there's a Lou Brock room up there. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, I was not aware of that. She held the all-time record until Ricky Henderson broke it in 1994. I had no idea. That's very cool. Um, okay, well, now we know. It's an educational start to the show before the show this week. That's what we strive to do. Educate the masses, right? Something like that. And our batting average is maybe in the, you know, uh, 30 or 40 on the... Hey! The- that we're we're Hall of Famers. If we're educating people forty percent of the time. That would be- I didn't say forty percent of the time. I was going on the twenty to eighty scale. <laughs> oh, I didn't say we were three hundred hitters. I that said- was a scouting grade. Yeah, that was a scouting grade. Yeah, we're batting two forty two. Dang, I definitely am going to read this entire um, biography of Sophie Curie's now. I did not know. Uh, her story. She only passed away in 2013 at the age of 87. She was a four-time All-Star. She was inducted into the National Women's Baseball Hall of Fame in 2013. Uh, 1,114 stolen bases. Goodness gracious, that is nuts. She also, uh, the previous record was held by, uh, or at least in Japan, was held by Yutaka Fukumoto, who stole 1,065. So nobody uh, before Ricky Henderson and uh, and Fukumoto had stolen over a thousand bases, with the exception of Sophie Curious. She also did that in nine seasons. What? That's over a hundred bags a year. Hey, when you're fast, you're fast. I mean, I hope Victor that Scott is, II is that's like a listening feeling to I this. I have never been familiar with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're in the era now where guys are pushing the envelope more than yeah. ever. We we had Chandler Simpson and uh, and Victor Scott II tie for the minor league lead with 94 steals last year. Who's to say, you know, that a thou- there isn't somebody in pro ball right now who could steal a thousand bases in their career. 
Yeah, that's true. Um, I just want to point out that uh, we live in a very down era for nicknames, which I think we've discussed on the podcast before several times. Uh, Sophie Curry's her nickname was the Flint Flash because she was from Flint, Michigan, or Tina Cobb because she uh, broke Ty Cobb's stolen base record. Those are both way better than like anything that currently exists in baseball. Um, not anything, I guess. There are some decent nicknames out there these days, but everything's just like, you know, First letter, last uh, first syllable of last initial. Anyway, not that's enough. Get off my lawn for this week's episode of the show. Before the show, for me complaining about things. Uh, well, we welcome you into the uh, the latest episode of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. We're kind of back to a normal format. We've been doing you know our predictions and our resolutions and uh, some other fun stuff over the last couple of weeks. But this week we've got an interview. We've got some fun topics to discuss with Ben. Uh, we're also uh, promoting some uh, video elements of the show before the show podcast now. So I'm rocking a, a new minor league hat every week. Although I've realized that now all of my minor league baseball hats are outdated because they all have the now old Milb logo on them. So I guess I got to replace all these. Uh, I'm going with the Fort Wayne tin caps today. Uh, your friend and mine, John Nolan of the, uh, the Fort Wayne tin caps, the radio broadcaster. Uh, I was out there for a college basketball game a few years ago. John was kind enough to give me a tour of the ballpark, Parkview field, which was a gorgeous place. And of course I snagged a hat. Uh, so that's the lid for this week's episode of the show before the show. And uh, dudes, we have a lot to discuss and we have a lot to discuss in terms of franchises finding new homes. Uh, we're going to kick things off with uh, a double-A team that is headed out after the 2024 season to uh, a new ballpark, a new city. Uh, the Mississippi Braves will no longer be uh, part of the Pearl, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi community. They are moving uh, to Columbus, Georgia, correct, Ben? Yeah, um, this is something that you, know, you hear a lot of things um, as in the works and X, Y, and Z, but uh, on Tuesday in the late afternoon, early evening, um, the Mississippi Braves just, you know, on Twitter and their uh, website posted an open letter, which was only a couple paragraphs saying just that uh, we are leaving Pearl Trustmark Park, their home since 2005 at the conclusion of the 2024 season and moving to Columbus, Georgia. So that was kind of like a, whoa, wow. Okay. That is official now. That was a bit of a bomb drop there on a Monday in January for sure. And so looking into this further, you know, the breaking it down and just giving a little more background on it. Um, a, the Mississippi Braves, like every team in the Atlanta Braves system, are owned by Diamond Baseball Holdings. And so it was DBH, you know, who was a main, you know, a primary factor in uh, facilitating this move. I believe that the lease on Trustmark Park was up after the 2024 season. Uh, attendance in Pearl had not been uh, all that great in recent years. I know they were towards the bottom of the uh, Southern League uh, attendance rankings. So it was not a location that they were finding to be, you know, perhaps the most profitable. Um, but then Columbus, Georgia, it was like wait a second, I hadn't heard anything about a new ballpark in Columbus, Georgia, and that's because there won't be one. They are instead doing a massive renovation of Golden Park, which, by coming back into the minor league landscape, will also be the third or fourth oldest ballpark in all of minor league baseball. I believe the fourth. Daytona, Bradenton, Asheville, and now Golden Park, which opened in 1926. So obviously a ballpark that opened in 1926 is not the kind of ballpark a minor league team would move into in the year 2025, uh, especially with the um, rigorous standards for player facilities. But the move came about after the Columbus City Council approved uh, last month a, a massive renovation project to Golden Park. And then um, on Tuesday, the same day in which the Mississippi Braves announced their move, the City Council approved a lease at Golden Park uh, with uh, the franchise now known as the Mississippi Braves with Diamond Baseball Holdings. Uh, so that ballpark, I've never been there. I don't know, um, you know, all the extent of the change, but that seems to me when you're talking about a ballpark built in 1926 being renovated to the tune of $50 million or so, um, it's going to be not a new ballpark, but a very, very different Golden Park than anyone who has been there uh, in the past will recognize. And you may have been there in the past because Golden Park – opened in 1926 and hosted minor league baseball for the better part of six decades between 1951 and 2008. Uh, the last team there uh, was the Columbus Red Sticks, R-E-D-S-T-I-X-X. -X. 
uh, strange name, very 90s branding or early 2000s branding. They changed their name to the Catfish for the last couple of years they were in town. And they moved after the 2008 season to Bowling Green and became the Hot Rods. So uh, there's a lot of history at Golden Park in Columbus, Georgia. And um, yeah, a lot to break down here as I'm trying to do. There's just, you know, when you get to this kind of uh, phase in minor league baseball with these kind of relocations, there are always a lot of moving parts. But um, yeah, big move for the Braves who now you'd think they had all their teams in the state of Georgia now because you have triple a Gwinnett in Lawrenceville, Georgia, basically a, a suburb of Atlanta. You had double a Mississippi Braves in Pearl just out of outside of Jackson. Now moving to Columbus, Georgia, you have the Rome newly minted emperors, formerly the Rome Braves, uh, in Rome, Georgia, and you have the Augusta green jackets, except the Augusta Green Jackets play technically. They used to be in Augusta, Georgia, but when they moved to their new ballpark, uh, was it SRP Park in uh, 2017, 2018? Regardless, they moved across the Savannah River to North Augusta, South Carolina. But regardless, it is an even more consolidated Atlanta Braves system, which is obviously good for the farm system playing in this uh, in the state of Georgia Um you know, greater proximity, but, you know, with the Braves kind of having that mantle of the team of the South, it does uh, take away central Mississippi as, uh, as, you know, it's still maybe their territory in terms of having a lot of Braves fans there, but um, they will be losing that uh, portion of Braves fans who can go to see minor league baseball games. And that's always the case with this kind of news, you know, joy and sadness in, in equal measure. Um, I only went to Trustmark Park once, uh, whatever, six, seven years ago. It was a Sunday. It was kind of dead. Um, I'd like to go maybe one more time. I'll put it on the uh, possibility list for 2024 uh, to see that one last time before they move. Uh, just as a quick note, the amount of random 90s branding that included the letter X or multiple letters X, very weird. There was like the West Tennessee Diamond Jacks with two X's at the end, the Red Sticks with two X's at the end. I don't know what it was about the letter X uh, in the 1990s, but anyway, neither here nor there. So that's one element of the dominoes falling across the minor league baseball landscape with teams moving. Uh, we are also heading into two other, uh, as it appears, apparent moves right now. Uh, the Down East Wood Ducks, who have played in historic Granger Stadium in Kinston, North Carolina, they appear to be headed to Spartanburg, South Carolina. This would be the last year uh, for Down East that I have many, many times on this podcast expressed how much I love Granger Stadium. I know they've done a lot of upgrades and changes and, and additions to Granger Stadium in recent years, uh, but that is another old facility. And uh, Spartanburg bringing a new ballpark online will get a team as well. Uh, what are you hearing about that move, Ben? Yeah, that one is not you know breaking news as uh, the Mississippi Braves to Columbus, Georgia was, um, but I don't think we've talked about it before. And since we're on the topic. Um, it does appear uh, if construction in Spartanburg goes as planned that, yeah, like you said, Tyler, 2024 will be the last season for the Down East Wood Ducks. Granger Stadium is in Kinston, North Carolina, and uh, has hosted minor league baseball for a long time. I know Tyler used to call uh, Kinston Indians games when his Myrtle Beach Pelicans were in town. Um, but they hosted the Kinston Indians for a lot of years. Kinston uh, gets complicated, but Kinston left. Um and down east came in uh, in 2017. Um, they changed. They didn't use Kinston as a geographical signifier. I think because it's such a small market, so they wanted to you know make the team appear you know more broad based. And so Kinston's not even in the down east section of uh, North Carolina, but it's close enough that they wanted to encompass that. But they came in in 2017 as part of that maneuver, which saw the contraction of the California League when we lost High Desert and Bakersfield, and two teams were added in the Carolina League, which was the return of Kinston in the form of the Down East Wood Ducks, uh, who are a Rangers affiliate. And that's also when the Fayetteville Woodpeckers came in as an Astros affiliate. Of course, they played their first uh, couple seasons in Bowie's Creek. Never forget Bowie's Creek, uh, North Carolina, on the campus of... Uh, Campbell, Campbell University. Yeah, the yeah. home of the Camels. Yeah. Camels, which is also the home of former Kinston Indians broadcaster Chris Haymeyer. So all kinds of random 
There is so much swirling around. Once you start talking about this, my mind picks up on four tangents and I indulge in one or two and I'm like, okay, nope, that one's too much. That one's too much. (laughs) But you can just go on and on. Um, So I'm not sure what the status is right now on the, um, you know, the the state of construction in Spartanburg. But again, if that goes as planned, we'll see the return of minor league baseball to Spartanburg. Um, That is a city with a long minor league history as well. I remember, you know, as a kid being a Phillies fan, seeing Spartanburg on the backs of baseball cards. There was the Spartanburg Phillies. And I can't recall off the top of my head where that franchise ended up, but it's been obviously decades since Spartanburg had a team. This will be a new facility as opposed to Columbus, Georgia, uh, renovating an old one. This will be a brand new ballpark. And then uh, one more. Since we're on the topic, this is a 2026 uh, planned relocation, but a ballpark has been approved in Wilson, North Carolina, which will host the Carolina Mudcats, who are based in Zebulon, uh, North Carolina, which is fairly close to Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. That's the largest market. In fact, one of the reasons that team is in Zebulon, because which is a relatively, I don't say rural area, but it, 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 it in and of itself is not a hugely populated area, but it was close enough without uh, territorial infringement and being close to some other major areas. But in 2026, it looks like the Carolina Mudcats in Zebulon will move to Wilson, North Carolina. And uh, I've actually been, Tyler and I, we were talking about this and, and Sam, you know, before we started fil- um, taping, filming, as it were. Um, yeah, Wilson has been a longtime home of a team that's now in the Summer Collegiate League, the Tobbs, at a historical ballpark called Fleming Stadium. Um, you know, they were left out of the equation in terms of this new ballpark. And I don't know what their future will be playing at Fleming Stadium and also competing with a brand new minor league team. But a lot of baseball history is as uh, there as well. And right next to um, Fleming Stadium is the North Carolina Baseball Museum, which I've stopped by on various road trips. And so if you're ever in North Carolina, the richest minor league baseball state and can make it to Wilson, even before this new ballpark opens, check out Fleming Stadium, check out the Tobbs, check out uh, the North Carolina Baseball Museum. But that is uh, scheduled for 2026. And there's other things swirling around right now as well. So I think the bigger lesson here is after the reorganization, restructuring, contraction of minor league baseball, the pandemic, we entered a couple years of uh, it being pretty status quo and stagnant in terms of uh, team movement. But now we're really starting to to see those uh, dominoes fall and sort of some new eras begin to emerge. The and Ben, by the way, just a very quick note, short yeah. for tobacconist. That's yes, like one the of the good old-timey minor league baseball slash now collegiate summer league nicknames. I think Durham still plays as the tobacconist every once they in a while. They do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of their alternates. I like that. Yeah. And and Ben, what I think one of the questions we've both been getting a lot on social media about this is, what is the trickle-down effect of the facility standards that is causing some of this movement? Because, you know, Teams are being asked to upgrade their facilities, their existing facilities. Sometimes it's easier to move to a better facility, build one wholesale, or improve the one that they're they're doing in Columbus than improve the ones that are existing. I like what you said earlier about there's always equal measure of happiness for a new market, sadness for a market that's losing a team. But what is the trickle-down effect of these new facility standards? I mean, it's the driver behind not every relocation, but um, a lot of them when there is a hard look at what – uh, needs to be spent or just what needs to be built in a pre-existing minor league market. Um, you know, sometimes those funds cannot be put together and, and understandably so. Um, so just like everything in the world, um, you know, the, the places with the money um, to commit uh, are going to be, end up, you know, the victors in these situations. And, um, you know, I, I think with the Mississippi Braves, I don't know what the extent of their upgrades were needed at Trustmark Park, but that's not that old of a facility. I think that one was more um, the amount of that that DBH was happy with Golden Park and the renovations there and maybe saw a better market to get into potentially um, with a, a new ballpark than, than what they were currently drawing uh, in Pearl. But certainly with Granger Stadium and the Down East Wood Ducks, that ballpark, you know, dates back to the 40s. And that's one that you essentially have to close to, you know, a renovation would probably cost almost as much as building a new one. And again, Kinston's a very small market. Um, So that was kind of one of the, I don't want to say inevitabilities, but one of the least surprising uh, moves that that Granger is not going to get updated to the extent it needs to be and that they're going to move on. I do hope uh, that it will become some sort of independent or more likely summer collegiate 
facility. You know, it's a beautiful place to see a game. Um, but Which yeah, it was the- in the last vacation of minor league baseball from Kinston. It was a coastal plains league city for a little while. And they also host uh, a division two or three world series there or an NAIA world something. There's, there's a, a big um, collegiate event uh, from year to year. Uh, I should probably know that probably shouldn't just throw that out there without the specifics, but there'll hopefully still be some baseball there on a, on a regular summer after summer basis. Absolutely. And that's a good point. Uh, just broadly speaking, Tyler, is that the departure of a minor league team in most cases does not mean the end of a baseball team playing at that facility. It means there will be probably a slight downgrade, but um, there are summer collegiate and independent options aplenty. So you always root for you know, hist- baseball to continue, even if it's in a new form. I will say Golden Park looks really cool. Um, and hopefully I, I do feel as though a circumstance like that is so unique where an old ballpark is going to be renewed in a sense and renovated to meet facility standards. It seems like if you're going to do that, you probably have the right frame of mind of how do we keep this feeling like a classic old ballpark while also meeting uh, the standards of the current day. So I'm excited to see what that'll look like uh, for Golden Park in Columbus, Georgia. Um, so those are some of the dominoes falling in the uh, the minor league baseball landscape. And uh, as we look back on the year 2023, uh, Ben, uh, bobbleheads, always a, a point of discussion on this podcast and writ large in our world as minor league baseball nerds. Uh, what was your favorite bobblehead of 2023? This is a topic that you have delved into recently. Yeah, well, last week I was kind of flailing around for uh, something somewhat relevant to write. And I was reminded that uh, January 7th is bobblehead day. National Bobblehead Day. Not yet Global Bobblehead Day, but uh, we'll get there eventually. Someday Um, soon. Yeah, and I believe that this quote-unquote holiday was uh, initiated by the National Bobblehead Museum, uh, which is located, I believe, I want to say in Wisconsin. Uh, Sam, my uh, researcher, is is looking it up right now. Um, So this year, January 7th, uh, was a Sunday, so maybe not the best day, you know, for something that's often celebrated online and social media. Um, Thank you, Sam. The National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That that is correct. Uh, I would like to visit sometime, as we all would, I think. But they, uh, I think, made National Bobblehead Day a thing. It was Sunday this year. And so I wrote a story for MLB.com and MILB.com, you know, going through some of the best bobbleheads of the 2023 season. Uh, I selected 10 of them. Um, I think my favorite, and um, this is the bobblehead that you know we've talked about quite a bit already. You, uh, in an episode that I was not a part of, you guys had Buffalo Bisons GM Anthony Sprague on the show to even talk about it, but it's the Mark bobblehead. Mark Akinger is the, the full name, but anyone in Buffalo uh, knows him just as Mark. In fact, the bobblehead was advertised with Mark in all capitalized, and he is a uh, Diehard super fan, you know, development, uh, mentally and physically disabled, uh, is at every single game, known for yelling, you stink at opposing players. And uh, the team gave out a Mark bobblehead. While, and, like, rubbing his armpit, right? Yeah. That was yeah. the bobblehead. Was his, his hand was – one arm is raised and his hand is in his armpit and he's yelling, you stink, which I – Yeah, you stink. And he's just a, a staple of Buffalo Bisons games. And the, the team did such a good job rolling it out. I believe they actually won a golden bobblehead uh, for their social media campaign. But a video of telling Mark that he get the bobblehead, a video after the fact recapping his day at the ballpark. They had special limited edition T-shirts, but it was just such a great celebration of something, of course, that I'm always trying to celebrate in my own work of the the people that make minor league baseball special. While the players come and go and you know move on to other things, those constants at the ballpark that mean a lot. So I think my favorite was uh, the Buffalo Bisons Mark bobblehead. I, I can almost speak for you, Tyler, and I put this one in the article, but. George Costanza, marine biologist on Seinfeld Day. We've been recently talking about your desire to go and actually tend to Seinfeld Day in person, but they did the marine biologist one where George is uh, riding or at least sitting astride a whale uh, that he is with a golf ball in his hand. Yeah, holding triumphantly holding a golf ball that he's emerged that he's uh, (laughs) extracted from the blow blow blowhole. There was also some good player stuff. You know, I'm never going to include just a player bobblehead in and of itself as a one of my favorite bobbleheads of the year, but teams got creative. The Amarillo sod poodles did the Corbin barrels bobblehead. Um, you know, he barrels the ball. They call him Corbin barrels. 
or at least I assume they do, but uh, he is depicted like in an actual barrel as if he's about to go riding down Niagara Falls, which is somehow my first reference when it comes to people in barrels. Um, Josh mine, Jackson. Can- mine would have been just as random because there used to be a Denver Broncos super fan called Barrel Man who would just go to every game wearing a barrel. So it's, yeah, there's no, I don't feel like there's any one correct reference for like, oh yeah, this dude in a barrel, just like that other thing in a barrel we all know. Yeah, and you know my mother's maiden name is Cooper, which is a barrel maker. So I, I come from some line of barrel makers. But anyway, a Corbin barrel uh, bobblehead in Amarillo is a good one. Also, Springfield Cardinals with the Lars Newt Bar uh, pepper grinder bobblehead. You know his uh, celebration when he gets on base towards the dugout, grinding the pepper. I like that their bobblehead. He's actually holding a pepper grinder, and I, I wish that he could stuff one in his back pocket when he's at, at the plate. So when he gets on base, he just pulls out the literal pepper grinder, but. I don't think that would fly in Major League <laughs> Baseball. But uh, those are a couple of mine. And I don't know. What about you guys? And sorry to already perhaps steal your thunder, Tyler, but uh, with the George Costanza. But And it doesn't even have to be this year or whatever. I'm going to leave it up to you. Tyler, you want to go first? Who did the bobblehead several years ago of the um, – wasn't it like the the actual UCL and the elbow was bobbling? It was like in honor of Tommy John. Yes, there was a Tommy John salute to Tommy John. I almost want to say the River Dogs. Uh, here, I'll take on the researcher role, and you guys keep going. Well, that one what? I remember. Um, yeah, that was a oh, it was the Potomac Nationals. Wow, oh, there we wow, go. ode to Tommy John, uh, and they had a uh, they had a bobbling uh, elbow ligament. <laughs> I think my favorite been... on on the list, and Ben, I've watched you like research this over your shoulder. Uh, because we sit next to each other, was Oily from the Tulsa Drillers. It's just a fun, like, throwback logo. Uh, it feels very like steampunk. Like the oil Derek looking one. He has an oil Derek for a nose. For yeah, a nose, for a nose. Yeah. That's right. He has a yeah. Baseball for a face. Baseball and for a, a head and an oil Derek for a nose. That is a good yeah. one. It just works really well. And I immediately thought, like, I kind of want a hat of Oily. Um, so it, it's already worked its wonders. I think like my, my favorite personal memory of a bobblehead. Was and I've talked about this on the show before. Like I went to a Pawtucket Red Sox game many, many years ago with my parents and, and a friend of mine, and Bronson Arroyo threw a perfect game. That day was Trot Nixon bobblehead night, so we all got Trot Nixon bobbleheads. They were porcelain, and they came in this box, and the box soaked through because people were celebrating all game long. It might have been beer, might have been soda, might have been water. But I remember picking it up as we were leaving, and Trot Nixon just fell through the box. No. Because it was porcelain, the stand just broke clean off. So he didn't have his feet. Uh, He had his legs still, but we like tried to kind of keep it together. But then it just became like a keepsake from that game. It would have been cool for like, yeah, just trotting next bobblehead. Better memory of like, here's the story behind it. Right. Yeah. So even now I'm recalling it on a minor league baseball podcast, which if you told me at the time that would happen would blow my mind. But. But you since know. he broke his feet, it's more like can't trot Nixon. Oh, uh, see, there it is. Um, I I have a, a favorite broken bobblehead, although I don't know if this is even around in my office anymore. But uh the the Colorado Rockies, I think the worst uniforms in baseball are the Colorado Rockies black vests. Uh, and they were originally designed to be worn with purple sleeves, which somehow made them even worse. But they did one giveaway one time of Todd Helton wearing the black vest with the purple sleeves. And I got that as a present. And uh, whoever shipped it to me, uh, it broke in shipping. And so I had this like one of a kind bobblehead uh, in which the the whole thing was broken, which it kind of deserves because that uniform is atrocious. But they only wore it one time ever in the history of the franchise. They wore it one time but it was still listed in the official MLB uniform guide as the way that they were intended to wear that uniform. So like on MLB, the show up until a few years ago, if you chose the alternate uniform for the Rockies, it was the black vest with purple sleeves because that was the official designation of it. And it is a heinous look. They wore it once in San Francisco and never again. Uh, So that's my broken bobblehead story. I also have one other broken bobblehead story, which is when I was a kid, at Coors Field, they used to have a store just for kids' gear called Buckaroos, and it was out in left field. It was on the concourse in left field, and my my best friend, Travis Owen, who's Sam you met, uh, he and I were at the Buckaroos store, and they had a bobblehead just like that. Yeah, generic smiley face baseball kid bobblehead, 
And Travis was like, Ty, look how fast I can make this thing go. He just kept bouncing the bobblehead up and down and up and down and up and down. And then the spring shot through the top of the bobblehead and the rest of the bobblehead's head just slumped and like laid over on the spring with the spring bouncing up through the top of its skull. It was like a, it was a baseball horror movie thing. And us being like 11 years old thought, well, let's get out of here and not tell anyone. So we just vamoosed and uh, we cost the uh, buckaroo store, you know, thirteen ninety five or whatever that would have cost in the mid 1990s. Anyway, the statute of limitations is passed on that. But I will also say <laughs> if we're now trying to use some video clips from this podcast on occasion, that was a video clip. Because <laughs> Tyler acted out physically. They acted out. Story. Boing. Yeah. Beep, yeah, beep, bouncing beep, around, beep, beep, beep. moving his neck. I mean, that that that's gonna that's gonna be a good one. I'm trying to get Josh Jackson to cast me in his next picture. See, nah. his next talkie that he does. See, uh, we will hear from our good friend Josh Jackson coming up here uh, in just a little bit. But before we wrap up this conversation, uh, Ben, there's an eclipse coming. There's another eclipse coming. A total eclipse of the sun. And uh, we've got minor league teams that may be getting a chance to play during that eclipse. They did so during the 2017 total eclipse. This one's coming on a Monday. And unlike in 2017, there are no scheduled minor league baseball games on Mondays now. But we may still see some minor league games on Monday during the next eclipse. Yeah, you know, for a little backstory, it was the the last uh, eclipse, national eclipse, was in 2017. Um, That one was deeper into the summer. I was at a game in Columbia, South Carolina, fittingly the Fireflies. I guess fittingly because it's a team that glows and uh, the ballpark went dark during the eclipse. And it was one of my greatest uh, minor league memories. And that was uh, a bunch of teams in the path of totality did some form of eclipse games that year, often with a built-in eclipse delay. The idea originated in Salem Kaiser with the volcanoes uh, who were then in the uh, Northwest league. And, um, and fittingly, that was one of the first places to be in the path of totality. They had a very early game and other teams as it moved um, southeast throughout the country uh, followed suit. So, you know, it's been on my radar for a while. OK, we got another one. But like you said, Tyler, April 8th is a Monday. So teams would need to get I don't know the exact process with the schedule makers and Major League Baseball and approvals. But that you need to get a special dispensation to play on a Monday because Monday is an off day. Uh, universally now uh, in minor league baseball. Uh, But today, this is breaking news. Uh, The Syracuse Mets announced that they will have an Eclipse Fest on Monday, April 8th, and a game that day uh, against the Worcester Red Sox. Um, The press release, I'll get some more details from the team. The press release didn't lay out all the information I was kind of looking for clearly, but it said gates will open at 2.30. I looked it up. Syracuse is in the path of totality uh, a little before 3.30. Um, But the game on the schedule, at least, and it is listed on Monday, April 8th, uh, usually an off day, is um, listed at 5.05. So if it it adheres to that timeline, it wouldn't be a game with an eclipse delay. It would just be a matter of opening the ballpark uh, very early, having a party and, you know, public mass eclipse viewing and then stick around for the ball game. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the timeline is going to be. You know, I want to confirm with the team, but I was really happy to see that that happened because then it said, okay, if Syracuse is doing it, hopefully other teams can do it as well. So looking at the path of totality in 2020 or on April 8th, 2024, um, let's see, it first comes into the United States in Texas and uh, it does hit Austin you know, very close to the Round Rock Express. It hits the Fort Worth, Dallas area. So I assume the Frisco Rough Riders that, you know, that's a little afternoon, Little Rock, Arkansas, home of the Travelers, uh, 1233 p.m. local time. Uh, Then it keeps moving, uh, you know, eastward and uh, northward. Uh, We have, what are some other candidates here? Um, Indianapolis, Dayton, Toledo, Cleveland, if they want to go big league, I'm not sure if the Guardians are home that day. Erie, Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse. So uh, there are some other potentials uh, there for other Eclipse games. Um, And relatedly, the State College Spikes, formerly the New York Penn League, Uh, Now in the draft league, their season doesn't start until June, but they announced like a ballpark solar fest that day. So even if the teams don't play, they're in the path of totality. There is at least the chance of a ballpark event, which I think is a pretty cool spot just to be communal with it and be at a ballpark. I certainly enjoyed it in 2017, and uh, I will definitely be looking forward to uh, 
covering this and hopefully attending somewhere, if not Syracuse, then somewhere in the path of totality on April 8th, because it was a spectacular uh, experience last time, and I'm sure it will be again. Um, yeah, I covered a lot of that stuff in 2017 and even became very familiar with the fact that there was a corn album, K-O-R-N, you know, new metal band that hadn't, they had an album called Path of Totality. So I, st- I kept referencing corn because I'd be Googling Path of Totality and I keep getting this corn album. Uh, if you have the opportunity to go to, uh, anywhere in the country that is in the Path of Totality, it's like one of the coolest things ever. So just, uh, use that information as you may. All right, gents. Uh, well, that wraps up segment number one for this week, which heads us to segment number two, in which uh, Sam Dykstra gets to talk with uh, a young and exciting talent in minor league baseball. Yeah. So this week is the rookie program that is being put on by MLB and the MLBPA. Uh, it's set up to help guys who either have some major league experience or no major league experience yet, but could be making their debuts in 2024. Just get them settled and and get them talking to people, get them in meetings and rooms over zoom uh, with people who have experience in the majors, get them ready for that experience because you know, it's, it's something like you'll never experience going from triple A to the majors. That's a big jump for anybody. We hear that time and time again. Uh, so one of the interviews I got to conduct with somebody as part of the rookie program, and I've been doing those all week with guys from various systems was Cardinals top prospect, Mason Wynn. Mason Wynn, a lot of people might know as having one of the best arms in the minor leagues as a shortstop famously through over hundred miles an hour in a futures game two years ago. Uh, but he does a whole bunch of other stuff. He hit really well at AAA Memphis last year, showed improved power. So we, we talk about that a little bit. We talk about his electric arm we talk about you know his major league experience wasn't quite what he was hoping for at least in terms of performance but now he gets to build on that in 2024 and beyond so here's me talking to mason win as part of the rookie program Uh, Mason, I, I want to start at the very beginning of your major league career. You made your debut on August 18th against the Mets. What do you remember about that whole experience from getting the call to actually showing up at the ballpark in St. Louis? It was pretty surreal, man. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, I was uh, I was told, you know, we had a real late, late, late game one night and, you know, our manager told me and, you know, I was obviously through the roof and, you know, let my mom know, let the family know. Um, I think the hardest part about the day was probably getting all the family out there. Um, I mean, just, you know, one day notice trying to get flights, trying to get everybody there to see me. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, obviously you got the the whole Pete Alonzo situation that happened my my debut with him throwing my my first hit away. But, nah, you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, that's, that's going to be a cool story I'll be able to tell forever. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just such a great experience. I mean, the fans, we did a flyover my, my debut just happened to be, you know, kind of around the same time. And, um, yeah, man, just super cool. Glad I got to see that. Glad I got to be around the fans, you know, family and, you know, playing with the with the big league club. Yeah, now that you have a few months to kind of reflect on that, uh, is it almost better with the Pete Alonzo version or would you just like to have had the ball and have no story attached to your first hit, just let it be a first hit? <clears throat> oh, 100% better. I mean, you know, for <laughs> sure it uh, – it it caused a stir up in the in the the Cardinals fans, but um, now for me, I mean, it was really cool. I mean, obviously, he's such a great player. Um, I mean, and shoot, I ended up getting you know a bottle of tequila, which I don't really drink, but you know, he got me a nice <laughs> a nice bottle of tequila and um, uh, a signed bat. So yeah, for sure, I'll take that trade any day. And I got the ball back, so we're good. We're right? Good. Yeah, you got it, and plus some goodies on, on top of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and before that, at AAA Memphis, I feel like. One thing that stood out to me, you had 18 homers in Memphis. That's a new high on the power side. What do you feel like had popped to really push for you to make that major league debut in August? Man, it was really, um, you know, we had a hitting coach down there, you know, Howie. And um, I mean, he was, he was so good. Um, You know, I was really struggling, you know, at the beginning of the year and then kind of, kind of got my footing. And then, you know, we worked a lot to try to, you know, just swing harder and, and with, you know, with more intent to to do some damage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I got to the big league club and kind of got a little timid. But, you know, while I was down there in AAA, you know, I was really just free swinging and, you know, trying to hit tanks and, and they were coming. Um, I think I was definitely ambushing, you know, taking advantage of, you know, some early counts while I was down there. But, um, yeah, I would just say, you know, our guy Howie got me right, you know, middle of the year. 
um, came back after the all-star break swinging. And, you know, I think he, uh, you know, his little tips and, and pointers helped me out for later yeah. in the season. Yeah. And, and you did come up at such a young time. The numbers not quite there. You talk about like being a little bit more timid at the major league level. Do you feel like there was any pressure to perform right away? I mean, how, what do you, what were your main takeaways from the majors? Uh, I mean, no, no pressure from anybody else. I feel like it was a lot of pressure I put on myself. Hmm. Um, you know, thinking I had to go out there and thinking we were going to win 40 games in a row and make the playoffs while I was up there, you know, it's just kind of unrealistic, but you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm so competitive, you know, I want to win every game regardless of, you know, where we're at in the standings or, um, you know, how I'm doing on the field, how the team's doing. I just want to win a game. So, uh, that was, that was tough. Um, but I think just the overall, overall process and, and how we went about it up there. I mean, it was, it was really good for me to get that experience. Um, you know, one of the guys was saying last year, you know, I'd much rather you be struggling, you know, at the end of the season this year, whenever it doesn't really matter than at the beginning of next year, whenever we're trying to push for a championship. So, you know, that made a lot of sense. That kind of took the pressure off me, but um, I think the biggest takeaway is, is probably just, you know, there's an adjustment to be made. I mean, obviously I was, I was banging out in AAA and, you know, the pitchers made an adjustment to me, you know, when I got to the major league level and I didn't adjust to them. So, uh, yeah, I just got to make those little adjustments every day. Yeah. And speaking of making those adjustments, what have you carried into your offseason prep? Oh, man, I'm trying to, you know, like you said, I hit 18 bombs and then triple A and only got only got two in the big league. So I've been, yeah. you know, really just trying to put on some weight, gain some muscle and, you know, work work uh the best I can and try to get ready for this season. You know, I'd like to I'd like to come out and, you know, I don't I don't think twenty twenty season is, is unrealistic. So I think if I uh, just keep putting the work in and, and you know keeping my head down, I think I think I'm I'm on the right track. Yeah. No, twenty twenty would be definitely a great uh benchmark to set for yourself. Um when you look at you were saying the way major league pitchers were pitching you and you have to adjust. What did you notice about the way they were pitching you? A lot of off speed. I mean, definitely, definitely pitching me backwards. I would think, uh, you know, you see Jordan Walker, you probably want to throw him a slider. You see me, you want to throw a fastball. But now nah, it seemed it seemed to be quite the opposite while I was up there. You know, guys were just making really good off speed pitches, and it was making their fastball seem even faster. So um, I think they were just pitching me real well. They had a good plan, and I didn't I didn't have a good plan for the off speed last year, which uh, I think I'll I'll be able to turn around this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you kind of touched on it a little bit there in terms of the Cardinals at the end of the year, a little bit of a disappointing year at the major league level, but everybody always expects to compete in St. Louis. What would you kind of describe the Cardinals current state? They've added some starting pitching this year. You're going to be building on last year. Jordan Walker's going to be building on last year. There's both adding at the top, but also a youth movement coming. Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited, man. And, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, especially with the guys we acquired, the guys we, we picked up, I mean, you know, obviously we're going to lose some guys every year, which is always, you know, always sad, you know, that's the business part of it. But, you know, some of the new pictures we got, I'm super excited. I mean, I've been watching Lance Lynn since I was in middle school, it feels like. So, you know, getting to play with another, you know, Wayno type guy, you know, one of the older guys, it'll be pretty, pretty cool. Um, but Sonny Gray, you know, Kyle Gibson, I'm I'm super excited to see what they can bring. Um, I know they're going to eat a lot of innings. You know, I'll be, be able to play a lot of innings behind those guys. And then, yeah, of course, Jordan Jordan and myself. And, you know, obviously, you know, Tink coming up, you know, Chase Davis, Gordon Graceffo got a great, in my opinion, I'm a little biased. I've played with the guys, but I think we got a great little farm system. So, um, yeah, super excited about the youth movement. You know, I'm super excited about, you know, what we're, we're trying to build over here. You know, I think uh, – you know, if it's not this year, it's 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 going to be the next couple of years. I'm pretty excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what is your personal mindset entering spring training? Are you going in saying I am the starting shortstop? Somebody's got to steal it from me. Or are you? Do you feel like you have to win the job? What do you? How do you kind of view that now as a full fledged major leaguer going into spring training? Um. Yeah. I mean, really, that's you know, I'm not the GM, obviously, so you know, I, I don't really worry about it too much. Um. You know, I think, uh, you know, maybe when I'm 24, 25, I'll be really stressing about, oh, I got to make this team right now. But I mean, right now I'm just trying to enjoy myself. You know, obviously I feel like, you know, we got we got a lot of great infielders, you know, so it's um, I don't want to say it's my position to take. I think it's I think it's mine to go to go get. But I don't, I don't want to say it's just mine uh, right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we, we can't talk to you, Mason, without bringing up your arm. 
It's one of the true 80 arms on the infield in, in the minor leagues. Um, but one quote stood out to me the other day was Paul Goldschmidt talking about you throwing. People know you can hit triple digits, but he said, quote, he was the most under control I've ever seen for a 21-year-old. He actually has a really easy ball to catch. I was really, really impressed by him. I know getting that arm, it's great to hit triple digits throwing it across the diamond like you did at the Futures game, but it's a whole different thing to keep it in control and get it to the first baseman. How have you worked on that the last few years? Um, really, our our defensive guy Jose Arcando, we call him Chael. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, my first year, uh, you know, I was I was out there, and it's funny because Justin Turner said something about the Futures game. He said, you know, you know, just throwing that hard is gonna all it's gonna do is give you errors, and you know, a lot of people hated on him for it, but he wasn't wrong. My first year, I made like like twenty six errors just trying to throw everything one hundred and five to first base. So, um, yeah, Jose Arcando got me right. You know, helped me dial it back and stay under control and. Nah, I really only let it eat when I have to. And it's it's funny because, you know, I didn't I don't think I let a ball go hundred percent last year in the big leagues, but you know, everybody sees the futures game throw and they think, oh man, that's gonna it's coming out every game. And you know, a lot of people don't understand like that was that's like a highlight. Like that's like a a high school PG crow hop throw. You know, that's that's not too realistic. But um yeah, man, I mean it's 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 fun knowing it's always there. And, and obviously what Goldie said, you know, it's just a true testament to what Cheo and I have worked on as far as, you know, just being under control and, and staying within myself, not trying to do too much. Um, so super cool. You know, obviously I'm blessed to have the arm, you know, if hitting doesn't work out, I can always fall back on pitching. So that's, that's always a good conversation starter. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Definitely a lot of benefits to have the, the arm. Yeah, actually, that was going to be my next question in terms of you being a pitcher because you have pitched in the minor leagues, albeit briefly. Uh, <laughs> where do you think you would be as a pitcher right now had you gone that way instead of moving towards being a position player? Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm I would like to say I'm confident. I, I don't want to call it cockiness because I, I would like to say I was pretty good. I think um, I think I'd be pushing pushing the major leagues if not in the major leagues if I was mm -hmm. a pitcher right now. Um, I think out of high school, I was probably a better pitcher. I think um, upside-wise, though, and like ceiling-wise, shortstop-wise, just athleticism-wise, I can I can reach reach a little bit higher. Right, yeah, and getting that chance to show that athleticism on a daily basis mm -hmm. I'm sure plays a role in that, too. Um, how would Mason win the pitcher attack, Mason win the hitter? You said breaking balls, you got a steady diet of them. Would you give yourself all breaking balls, or how would you uh, handle it? I my uh, my best pitch is a slider. I might rip myself three sliders in a row. <laughs> I, yeah, for sure, for sure. See see if I can handle it. Good practice for the hitter too, I guess. Hundred uh, percent. All right, and the just the last one. There's a new initiative coming uh, for spring training this year called Spring Breakout, putting top prospects from each org against each other. Um, it's a new thing that's coming. The Cardinals are actually playing two games this year. You guys are going up against the Marlins on March 15th and the Astros on March 17th. You know. Mm -hmm. It's a new thing. What is your initial reaction to this? And what are you looking forward to most about potentially playing in the breakout games? Um, I think it's uh, it'll be good for the prospects. I mean, you know, it's kind of going to be like a little bit of a futures game, just kind of a preseason futures game. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it'll be pretty cool. I mean, definitely, you know, obviously for the younger guys, it'll be a good experience. And, you know, maybe, you know, first couple year guys that haven't gotten, you know, too many big games or haven't gotten that futures game experience to be able to get, into a big, big game like that early in the season, I think is going to be pretty cool. I think it'll be pretty high intensity still, even though it's in spring training. So, um, yeah, it should be fun. I mean, I think it's going to be a lot of young guys trying to go out there and compete. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once piled up hundreds of innings as a pro. The others never logged any outings at all. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball players did at one time exist. A. Edward Worm. B. Edward Edgehog. C. Edward Diggins. I'm going to give you all the dirt on this guy if you took the bait and picked A. Edward Worm. 
who was a dignified member of the Jersey City Skeeters of 1921 and 1922. But if you think that Skeeters hurler was a pest on the bump, wait till you hear what Worm did in the box. <laughs> During a September doubleheader against the Syracuse Stars in 21, Worm was patrolling the grass as a left fielder, batting sixth in the Jersey City lineup in both games. Over the course of 16 innings, 9 in the first game, 7 in the second, Worm found some holes, but not with batted balls. He rounded out the entire day with an 0-for-1 line, wriggling around the bases to score one run. But the Syracuse Herald wrote of his performance, Worm can throw his chest out and announce himself as the holder of a record. What record? After he flied out on his first trip to the dish, Worm proceeded to walk seven straight times over the afternoon. Nobody was known to have done so in pro baseball before, although a handful of major leaguers have matched the mark over multiple days since then. If Worm's achievement seems a bit spineless to you, you can take comfort in knowing his Skeeters were underneath the stars. Far underneath. Not only did they drop both games of the doubleheader by a combined tally of 18-9, not only had they dropped the previous day's game to the Stars by a score of 17-4, but even though Syracuse managed to finish the 21 campaign 48 and a half games behind the Baltimore Orioles, Jersey City was even lower down. Worm Skeeters were buried 59 and a half games out. Aww. That's okay. Who would have wanted old Edward to win a title and become a ringworm? <laughs> the team fared considerably better in 22, going 83 and 82, but Worm began to bottom out. Although he was with the Skeeters through spring training and into April of 23, he tunneled beneath the bedrock of baseball history by the time that season really got going. And that's how Edward Worm inched away from the spotlight. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams put stardust in the eyes of its fans in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Houston Constellations. B. The Cape Canaveral Moonshooters. C. The Roswell Sunshiners. Want to know the answer? Keep watching the skies. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is preparing for a weekend of bad weather, and I've got to sabotage his pillow fort. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, we're just like three months away from uh, us giving you our milled TV picks and everything else, which is tremendously exciting stuff. Uh, but before we get out of here, we uh, have the ability to tell all of you listening from minor league baseball front offices, our services are already in high demand. We already have a team interested in a the show before the show night at the ballpark. And if you want to get in on the ground floor, uh, you got to submit your own proposal, your own bid right now. We're going to accept bids. You know, there was some news this week that the Houston Astros and the Texas Rangers are bidding to host the final of the 2026 World Baseball Classic. This is even bigger. I mean, if you could imagine that times a billion, that's pretty much what the show before the show night at your ballpark could be. Um, I don't think that's hyperbolic, personally. Maybe a billion, maybe like half a billion. If you could half a billion times the excitement of the World Baseball Classic final, that would be the show before the show night at your ballpark. Uh, we've already got teams clamoring. Get in touch. Podcast at MILB.com. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. I tell Ben and Sam are thrilled. They're like, we have to hang out with this moron in no, person. I, That's I, great. You know, like I, I've never been a huge wrestling guy, but I feel like you just cut a promo, and I don't. Yeah. Mean that. Normally, promos are like trying to egg on the other wrestler to, you know, get them angry or get people to tune in. You just kind of like cut the promo to get other people tuned in to this. Yeah, you're darn tooting. Yeah. yeah. So we have one club who we're not naming. We're not yeah, going to name an unnamed club, but they're definitely real. Yes, they, they actually are. It's not like oh, my girlfriend's from Canada. You wouldn't know her. Uh no, it's this this team is definitely real. Yeah, and they're the front runners. One because they're the only club, and two, I think being first <laughs> goes a long way. It, it does. does. It really it does. does. It, it shows that they are listening to this podcast. 
and interested in working with us. And we are very appreciative and we do not want to demean they're getting in touch by just no, saying, okay, let's see all. if something's better. I mean, I think one of the issues is our geographic um, right, right. issues with uh, one of us I, is far flung. Right. Sam and I sensibly in the Northeast and uh, Tyler not. <laughs> but also I will say this, like just because we have one team in doesn't mean we're not accepting bids for future years or maybe right. multiple stops. Maybe multiple stops. Maybe a tour. Maybe exactly. a tour. We can make this a we tour. We print out t-shirts. Yeah. Oh, I like that idea. We could do it like a concert uh, schedule, uh, a live tour t-shirt. I kind of want to do this if we only go to one place. Yeah, even if we go to one place, it'll just be, we can just list that like 18 times on the back, like June 24th at blank. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's all great. I also assume all of the other front offices that listen it's like, you know, a circumstance where like a college football team wants to hire a head coach. They got to go to all their big boosters and get the money together for it. I'm assuming that there are a lot of conversations happening like, well, okay, how many figures can we throw with these guys? They command obviously seven figures if you include like four figures of change. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's probably what's going on in all these other front offices. They're just trying to get the financials nailed down. Well, let's be blunt here, Tyler. Your name, image, and likeness are the most expensive of anybody here. You know, what can I say? I get uh, I get tens of dollars for uh, for this face and voice from time to time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to mention our uh, riders. I mean, Sam needs a designated weeping room to mourn the loss of Bill Belichick. <laughs> <laughs> a designated weeping room. The Sam Dykstra Bill Belichick Memorial designated weeping room. I'm just a man who's in touch with my emotions. I don't please, know what to tell you guys. Please hang that up on Sam's desk. We all, <laughs> I'm going to make a sign and I'm going to send it to Ben to print out and hang up on Sam's desk. Yeah, how you doing with all that there, Samuel? Uh, It's fine. I mean, listen, we we won a lot. Or I've witnessed a lot of uh, Super Bowl championships over the years. Uh, every, All good things come to an end. This team was not very fun to watch this year. You know, Bill's not I, getting any younger. I had one interaction with Bill Belichick once. Um, I, as as some know, I do uh, college lacrosse uh, as one of my side gigs. And uh, the head coach of the University of Denver for the last decade plus was Bill Tierney. Was, essentially, if you can think of Bill Belichick in college lacrosse terms, he's he won seven national championships at two different schools. Like he's he is the John Wooden of, of college lacrosse. He's also just like the greatest human being that I've known. I'm not a lacrosse guy. I never really have been a lacrosse guy. Uh, but he's amazing. And like, I enjoyed being around him so much that that, anyway, that's neither here nor there. We played in the, uh, in the final four championship weekend. This is back in 2017, I believe. And, uh, it was at Foxborough, uh, and Bill Belichick and Bill Tierney like grew up together and they're like close, close friends. So the guys are out there practicing the day before the semifinal matchup and Bill Belichick comes out and he says hi to coach T and they're talking and whatever. And, uh, and I said, I'm, I'm going to go ask him like what one great coach thinks makes another coach great. So I walked up to Bill Belichick as he's leaving the field. And I said, Hey, I'm Tyler. I'm the, the Denver radio guy. You mind if I just like ask you a couple questions about coach T? Cause I really just wanted to get like, to be at that plane of existence of like how great you are at something and recognizing how great somebody else is at that thing. What's your scouting report on that person? And when I asked him, like, can I just ask you a couple questions about coach? D? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Thanks. He was very pleasant. I will say he was very pleasant. He was like, no, I'm sorry, but I hope you have a good day. And I was like, okay, I get it. Like, I think he probably, he didn't want to make it about him. You know, it's his friend's big moment. He doesn't want to make it about him. So I get it. But I was kind of like, oh, that's, oh, that was a very Bill Belichick experience. So, you know, that's it what is, I'll take for the remainder of my life. That is just quintessential, like just getting turned down by the guy. Yeah. It's like what it, yeah. what you would exactly imagine the experience to be. Yeah, it's like when okay. I went to uh, Mobile, Alabama for the opening of the Hank Aaron Childhood Home and Museum, and it was just A-list to the extreme with all the Hall of Famers who showed up for that. And I was getting interviews from Bob Feller, Ricky Henderson, Hank Aaron himself, and blah, blah, blah. I went up to Reggie Jackson. He just put his palm in front of my flip camera and said, not today, young man. And, I, and in a way, I, I kind of liked it better. I was like, everyone else, this is a positive event. I'm just like a minor league baseball writer. There's nothing edgy or confrontational about this but still i got to have my like reggie jackson your reggie jackson moment yeah. and it's kind of like all right man you're at a dedication of a childhood home and museum for one of your friends and you won't talk about it. like come on come on dude but that is pretty great but that's a 
That yeah. is a very you had the Reggie Jackson experience. Yeah, some people just are on brand, and in a way, rejection is better than acceptance because it just gives you that story. I, I had a good sausage experience like that one time, but I'll save that for another. Episode. Oh yeah, we can save that for another. I will say this: we yeah. will not be that way at uh, the show. No, the show, at your mind, Pum, we will talk. not. Whatever you want, we will do it for you. We are we have such a complete lack of standards and morals. Whatever you need us to do, whatever shady businesses you want us to shill, whatever. As as noted, we are open to the highest bidders. We have no standards. There's some standards. <laughs> I didn't like how you do. You didn't really like. You weren't shaking your head, turning me down like no moron. You just like you kind of went along with me there. You kind of you were kind of okay with me just selling us out to whoever wants. Well, to I just want to see what the pitch is first, and then maybe say no. But like, how weird? How weird do they want to get? Well, I, I'm true. interested to hear. That's all I want to. All right. Uh, podcast at milb.com. Submit your bids today uh, for your very own the show before the show night, and uh, that'll do it. Right? That's it. I didn't miss anything. How you guys like the new laptop for me? Do I look any more attractive or professional? Oh, you don't look less. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I can hope for. Uh, and on that note, we're going to wrap it up. For Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra and Josh Jackson and all the rest, my name is Tyler Mont. Thanks for tuning in to the show before the show. We'll catch you next week.